0: real farming for me is the biggest climate solution. Fake food as a climate solution is a fake solution. Food is about eating. Food is about nourishment and if it's nutritionally empty food, you're going to get all kinds of sicknesses and disease and in this world of vibrant life, rich diversity and deep intelligence practicing real farming Eating real food, in my view, becomes a revolutionary act.
1: That's Vandana Shiva, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vandana Shiva on real food, real farming. We live in a time where our connection with food and with the farmers that grow it has been undermined. The root of the problem is a growing dependence on a dysfunctional paradigm based on pesticides and monocultures, and a separation between humans and nature. How we produce, distribute, and consume food is increasingly becoming the center of the multiple crises we face today. Ecologist Vandana Shiva says, It is possible and healthy to have a whole and nutritious diet based on biodiverse plants. But, she warns, do not become subscribers to Bill Gates' fake food empire. We must, she urges, join hands with the earth and return to a culture of care that provides dignity to farmers who produce real food to feed the world. Our guest today is Vandana Shiva, an internationally renowned voice for sustainable development and social justice. She's founder of Navdanya and director of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Natural Resource Policy in New Delhi. She's the author of many books. Her latest is Terra Viva. She spoke in Sweden in early 2023. And now, Vandana Shiva.
0: And thank you to all of you. So when they asked me to, for a title for the public talk, I said, real food, real farming. Because so much of the aggression in our times, every newspaper, every TV show, is talking about saving the world with fake food. Just like half a century ago, they brought fake fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers, and said we won't be able to feed the world without fake fertilizers. And they were synthesized nitrogen by fixing atmospheric nitrogen through burning fossil fuels. Then they said we won't save the world with, without having GMOs. And now they're saying we won't save the world without you eating fake food. Now, A, if there wasn't a history of the consequences of fake narratives, on the one hand... And on the other hand, so much thinking in science, in practice, of what food is, this exercise of fakeness of saying, those people who are financing this, because you know no one shifts to fake food on their own. No one shifts to GMOs on their own. These are always forced. So fake food will have to be forced. And the worldview that's being created is farming without farmers. Food without farms. Of course, farming is what farmers do, and till recently, half of humanity anyway. I think more than half of humanity even today does agriculture, especially if you go to the south. In India, they've been trying to force the farmers off the land. Ever since globalization, the green revolution, and yet 60% of Indians still are rural and live on the land, are farmers are dependent on the land. So this farming without farmers and food without farms basically is food from labs. But food from labs doesn't come out of thin air. It still needs feedstock. And from the experience we have had, each escalation of the artificial is an escalation of external inputs. You use more resources, you use more energy to produce worse outputs. So, you know, India has had deep thinking. I mean, in the bus- when I was busy doing quantum theory, I wasn't reading all this amazing stuff. But when the food question became urgent to me after 1984, when the Green Revolution in Punjab had led to so much destruction that the farmers rose in revolt. 15,000 people were killed in the what happened after that. And then the Golden Temple had to be invaded, which is a sacred shrine of the Sikhs. And that same year, a pesticide plant of Union Carbide leaked in the city of Bhopal. Killed thousands. The gas just went through in the middle of the night, winter night. Killing, th- and people are still dying, and ten of my sisters, have gone on a hunger strike to say when will you give justice to Bhopal? This is 1984. We are in in 2023. Next year will be 40 years. So these two things shook me up, and I wanted to understand. So I studied the Green Revolution, and then I started to follow ecological farming, in which there are so many schools. I think the deepest thinking is in the biodynamic the most organized practices are in the organic. Because it's it's got e-form, it's got standards, it's got certification. It had Albert Howard. Albert Howard was sent to India by the British in 1905 to improve Indian agriculture. Because that's what the colonizers had to do, to always improve us. And he arrived, but he was a good scientist. And he could see with his eyes, these soils are so fertile. I cannot teach the peasants how to improve their practices. And he found the fields were full of insects, but there was no pest damage. So he said, I'm going to make the pest and the peasant my professor to learn good farming. As a result of which, he wrote the book, The Agricultural Testament, which is what basically guides the organic movement. But we've been eating. Every, every being eats To be alive means to eat, and when I started to to investigate deeper more recently, I I did a whole book on food and health and its links. I went back to writings of people who were looking much more at, at the spiritual values of food, at the ecological values of food. And I just want to open by sharing with some quotes. So, I've come to the conclusion that the web of life is a food web. That food is a flow, it's a currency. Food is not stuff, food is not a thing. Food is definitely not junk, and food is not a commodity. So, the web of life is a food web, and the cycle of life is a food cycle called the nutrition cycle. Everyone knows the nutrition cycle is vital, it's a food cycle. this is regenerative agriculture. Anna is food, A-N-N-A is a word for food in Hindi and Sanskrit. It says, for it is of Anna that indeed all beings are born. And it is from Anna that they obtain the necessary sustenance for living. And having lived, it is into Anna they emerge at the end. And that's the soil. And the best is, everything is food. Every being is made of food. Every being is someone else's food. Immediately, we realize we are part of the web of life. We are members of an earth family. And this, you know, three, four hundred years of craziness, of thinking we are top of the pyramid. Other beings are below us. They're just objects to be manipulated, objects to be exterminated and pushed to extinction. That thinking is actually not that old, That mechanical thinking began with Mr. Descartes and Mr. Bacon. And they were given the job of creating sciences of conquest. Bacon was the chancellor of England. And in the time when he was the chancellor, he was also in charge of the inquisition, the witch hunts. So he took that whole interrogating the witches, Into a scientific method and said, it's torture of nature that allows us to know her secrets. You've got to subjugate nature, you've got to make her your slave. And so we have a very violent way of thinking in a mechanistic way and a reductionist way. Of course, the irony, you know, uh, I, I think often how, you know, this level of arrogance then finds its answers. So, Mr. Bacon died by stuffing snow into a chicken to see if he could preserve the chicken by filling it with snow. Mr. Bacon got influenza and he died, the chicken didn't. It's it's very brutal um, experimental method, you know, a brute empiricism. And the gentle empiricism that Gertie talked about and other scientists who really see the whole and see all the relationships. And I love this one. So do not look, since food sustains life, it says, do not look down upon Anna. This, that is the inviolable discipline of the one who knows prana, la, you know, the breath and life. In the Mahabharata, they say, That the highest dharma, dharma is the right action. And the highest dharma is the growing and giving of good food. And that's why India had this amazing tradition. You come to someone's house, they feed you. Because they're dharma. For the farmer, the dharma was not doing an agriculture of carelessness. I've worked with all kinds of communities in India. And I remember a particular time I was helping an indigenous community who was fighting a bauxite mine on their sacred mountain Yamgiri. So I had gone there to support them, and I was having meetings with them. And at a certain point, one of the members just got up and mumbled something, and left. And you know, you, your, your typical understanding is, or well, something must have happened, must be an emergency. What he was mumbling, and his colleagues told me, see, he was saying. Now I must go beautify the earth. Farming is beautifying the earth. Farming in a good way, in a non-violent way. So the going, growing of giving of food is the highest dharma. Not growing food, or growing food badly, or giving people bad food, is the highest adharma. The opposite. So we've, of course, messed up with the food system. First, it began with making fake fertilizers, because soil fertility is the living process of a living soil. Soil is living, and the life in the soil creates the soil fertility. You know, This planet was a dead planet, but we are a living planet because first the microbes, then the plants, through photosynthesis could take sunlight and transform it and absorb the carbon dioxide. We were a carbon dioxide rich planet and depleted in oxygen. 98% CO2. And just this photosynthesis process of the green leaf and microbes took the sunlight, took the CO2, turned it into carbohydrates that many are now calling the molecule of life. And at the same time, give us breath, give us oxygen. No mechanical system can do all this, none. But those carbohydrates the plant produces are then food for the microbes that turn minerals into soil. From the minerals they bring the nutrients to the plant, they get the energy from the carbohydrates, and then the plant's organic matter is recycled. And before you know it, you're creating soil as a living system by co-creating with living systems. And this then created the conditions where our species could arrive. The oxygen increased. The carbon dioxide decreased. The temperatures, which used to be... How much was it? The temperatures came down. To a livable temperature for the human species to evolve. But this is also where we should be looking how, you know, the whole, what's the Gaia hypothesis? The Gaia hypothesis is the Earth is living, her living biosphere creates the atmosphere and regulates the atmosphere. And that's the reason temperatures came down, carbon dioxide came down. But what are we doing today? Industrial agriculture is a destruction of the biosphere and biodiversity and the illusion that somehow fossil fuels will replace it. Because all synthetic fertilizers, you know, the fossil fuel based, the nitrogen fertilizers, one kilogram of fertilizer uses two liters of diesel. And then it emits nitrous oxide, 90% is wasted, goes into the waters. And the soil organisms cannot live with the salt. So you have desertification. And these externalities, of course, weren't seen. You know, when I did the book on the Green Revolution, on the one hand, a lot of people, you know, started to see these connections. And on the other hand, those who had pushed the Green Revolution started to panic because the narrative was, we feed the world with chemicals. And here in Punjab, the chemicals were ruining the land, killing the water. Our, our work has shown that you know, the synthetic fertilizer use then weakens the plant. You use 10 times more water. The plant is just water. Absolute feast for pests. You get more pest attacks, so you use more pesticides. Fertilizer use leads to pesticide use. And there's a cancer train that leaves Punjab called the cancer train its name is the cancer tree because of the heavy pesticide use and yet we're still being told you know that they keep organizing in a new way and right now the way the pesticide industry has organized itself is called the crop life it has nothing to do with crops and has nothing to do with life it's basically companies that produce toxic chemicals to kill insects to kill plants And human beings. Bhopal was human beings being killed by pesticides. 200,000 farmers die every year because of pesticide poisoning. So this is not a science of life. They re-engineered their name from the agrochemical industry to the life sciences industry. When they were starting to use GMOs or wanting to use GMOs. And that's the second attempt. Of creating, of of basically find way to manipulate, and substitute nature and substitute good farming, by creating an unnecessary input. Synthetic fertilizers were the first unnecessary input. Manipulating seeds and plants, to make GMOs, in order to take patents was the second. And. You know, when people ask me, why are you against GMOs? I said, I'm not against GMOs, but I'm against blindly accepting something that has totally failed. As a scientist, a failed tool cannot constantly be retooled as a miracle. Mr. Gates has recently said the GMOs are miracle seeds, magic seeds that are feeding the world. When this whole debate started in the 90s, and, you know, I would debate the World Bank, I would debate the industry... And they would say, yeah, yeah, the green revolution, things went wrong. But now we have the perfect technology. We're going to grow food on the moon, in the Sahara, and on toxic dumps. What did we get now, 30 years later? All we have is BT toxin crops and herbicide-resistant Roundup ready crops. That's it. Two traits. In four crops, corn, canola, soya, cotton. I know what the BT cotton did to my country. Because I was forced to go into cotton, saving seeds, training organic farmers, um, helping create economies of weaving and using that organic cotton. Since globalization, we've lost 400,000 farmers to suicide because of debt. Of these, because this is the government data and the government puts out in this district, in this state, this many. We know that the districts and states where the cotton is grown. Because stock cotton doesn't grow everywhere. 85% of the 400,000 are in the cotton area. And our competition commission recognized, about three years ago, I think, before Bayer took over Monsanto, they had recognized that Monsanto had a monopoly on cotton. 95, According to the government data, 95% cotton seed in India, and I guess the world, is GMOBT cotton. If you, use, if you produce a Bt toxin plant to control pests, the success of that technology is the pests get controlled. The failure of that technology is you have more pests, and the pests you were trying to control is now resistant, so you've created a super pest. A pest control technology that creates super pests is not effective. In the US, it was mainly Roundup-ready crops to spray more glyphosate. To kill all plants, you know, as the Monsanto... I I remember during the negotiations of Convention on Biological Diversity, a Monsanto representative got up and said, we have such a smart technology that we can prevent the weeds from stealing the sunshine. And and for them, then killing all biodiversity, except the four plants that they were using, uh, was basically a contribution, I think, this is a very clear example of creating a, a product to kill life on earth, the green leaf that is the basis of the whole cycle of food. Today, half the farmlands of the United States are overtaken by superweeds, created by Roundup Ready crops. Because what was ignored was that plants are intelligent, bacteria are intelligent, and when an insects are intelligent, and this constant pressure leads intelligent organisms to evolve resistance, so you have super resistant weeds and you have super resistant pests, and more toxics are being sprayed and that 's why they 're le- rushing for gene editing, which the European Court of Justice has recognized as. A GMO, because a GMO is a genetically modified organism where modification is done at the genetic level. Whether you add a new gene or you edit a gene, the results in both are genetic modification. And because all living systems, including the seed and the plant, are systems which are self-organized complexity, autopoiesis, as Machirana and Varela have said, And self-organization means an amazing harmony at every level of the genome. Every element of the genome is linked to other elements of the genome. One gene, one trait is not true. All genes work together to produce one trait. And each gene contributes to multiple traits because it's not a linear one-to-one relationship. And they're now calling... Gene editing as precision breeding. There's nothing about breeding there. And it's definitely not precision. Because when you're dealing with complexity, you don't look for precision, you look for balance, you look for nonviolence. And already in the first year, and, and another interesting thing is when molecular biology was created, the Rockefellers were funding the whole gene reductionism. You know, we want to find genes under the skin. Because they had been, you know, eugenics had been criticized for sexism, for racism. So they said, okay, we'll put all these atoms of determinism, they called it, under the skin. And they funded molecular biology to reduce complexity of life to the molecules of determination. And that's why the ideology of genetic determinism is the gene is a master molecule. There's no master in life. Everything is a network, and all through those years, every Nobel Prize was given to people Rockefeller had funded. More recently, what happened? Okay. Mr. Gates funded gene editing, the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, and it's interesting. You know, CRISPR is re- that technology of absorbing a virus is the way bacteria deal with viruses. So they just see saw how nature works, and then appropriated as, as their invention, and he funded the California scientists and the uh, scientists in Cambridge. Then they started to fight. So he funded both to fight the patent. And he has a company called Editas that holds gene editing patents. But he got the Berkeley scientists the Nobel Prize. And this at a time when other scientists were finding out that It's such an imprecise and disrupting technology. Just give you one or two examples. You know, it talks about precision. But a study found that 1,500 single nucleotide mutations took place and 100 larger deletions and insertions when one gene was edited. One gene. 1,500 unpredictable impacts. An increasing body of knowledge is showing there is total unpredictability in the outcome. I remember very clearly, in India we love the horns of cow, and biodynamic agriculture is so based on the cow horns. And, um, and we have festivals, yeah, we have the festival of the animals, and they decorate the horns of the cows, and the cows are left free, you, you can't ro- ro- rope them in, they won't work, they're on a holiday. And they go around with these beautiful, and you know, they're all over the place, these beautifully decorated animals. And and when you take animals and put them in a factory farm, those horns become a problem, you know, they start fighting each other, just like the pig's um, tail becomes a problem in factory condition, and the beak of the chicken becomes a problem. So they de-beak, they burn the newborn chickens so they won't fight each other. They detail the pigs. So they, will, they create conditions of violence and then do more violence to solve the problem, which can't be solved. Anyway, gene editing, some scientists in California said we will now gene edit a bull, we'll uh, gene edit animals to be hornless for the meat industry to have more, bigger factory farms. But from somewhere in these gene edited animals, there was huge bacterial infection. And you cannot sell bacteria-infected meat. So th- I remember this debate because they tried to get permission to sell it as b- for beef. And they were not allowed. So the pres- imprecision is so known. And yet the desperation is so huge. Because why is gene editing being pushed? Gene editing is being pushed because not only... Can they not work with the old GMOs anymore? They're trying very hard to pretend they're nature. They're trying to pass it as a natural technology so that they can deregulate for biosafety and get out of labeling. So once they get gene editing through as natural, it will not require safety. So there'll be all this stuff happening in your food and you won't know it. And you won't be able to make the choice that I don't want to eat this stuff because it will have a label natural. Yeah. So we are at a very dishonest moment, extremely dishonest moment in terms of our food. And this, because movements have been so successful, because the agri- organic movement has been so successful, because the biodynamic movement has been so successful, this is why the aggression to introduce fake technologies and force it on society. Is become the single most ag- biggest agenda for the industry. And when I say industry, I mean both the financial part of it and the biotech part of it, the part that wants to control the seed and now to control the food. So synthetic fertilizers began with synthetic, you know, s- began the introduction of synthetic elements, artificial elements into the food system. Then you had, instead of of breeding of whole organisms with whole organisms, you now had genetic engineering to really not have the the clearance of the organism to accept modification. It was a forcing of the organism. And in the process, you actually created fake seed. Why do I call it fake seed? Because the nature of seed is to arise. The word in India for seed is bija. Jha is life. Bija is that which arises on its own forever and ever and ever. Because the seed doesn't ever get exhausted. But the idea of creating terminator seed, non-renewable seeds, patented seeds, is trying to stop the urge of life from renewal. And it's worse than that because not only is it trying to control the seed, it's then trying to criminalize the farmers who save seed and exchange seed. And this is the reason I save seeds. This is the reason I started Navdanya. This is the reason I do the work I do. We've created 150 community seed banks in India to reclaim seed as a commons. We've written laws that say seeds and animals and plants are not inventions. So in India, it's not patentable. And we have laws on farmers' rights, that farmers are the first breeders, and their rights cannot be alienated. And I do hope some of you will find your way to Navdanya, I met some of people who have already been, and I know the young people who are going through the course come and visit. This finding ways to extract, to make profit, and turn renewability of life into non-renewability, to turn the abundance of life into scarcity, is what the fake food is all about.
1: You're listening to Vandana Shiva. On Real Food, Real Farming. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program and her book, Terra Viva, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's one 800 444 Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So the fake food
0: begins with the high fructose corn syrup made from GMO corn. And you never hear of the harm it's doing. And because it's addictive in America, it's put in baby food. It's put in sausages. It's put in everything because it creates the urge to eat more. But now babies and children are getting cirrhosis of the liver. Because this molecule goes and hits straight away. Because food is the currency of life, it is the communication between the soil and the plants. I want to just share with you my, my understanding of this, that if as food is currency, then eating is a conversation. And there's actual research being done by brilliant scientists who show the difference between eating fresh, organic food and the conversation that goes on between the cells in your gut and food. And when they put chemical food, the discordance that goes on. And through that communication is the disease. I've written eating is a conversation between the soil, the plants, the cells in our gut, the cells in our food, and between our gut and our brain. Eating is an intelligent act at the deepest cellular and microbial level. The cellular communication is the basis of health and well-being. It is also the root of disease. Poisoned food creates disease. We might be ignorant about the links between food and health, but our cells are more intelligent. Our body is more intelligent than the reductionist mechanical mind contemporary humans have developed, where we think of food. As fuel and our body as a machine. You know, when I go visit schools, the first question I ask children is, What is food? And because they're learning from textbooks, not from their grandmothers, they get up and say, our Food is the fuel that runs the bo- our bodies, which is a machine. So we have so degraded food and so degraded our bodies to not know anymore what food is. And it's in that confusion that the phoic food system is coming in. High fructose corn syrup was the first. Then you might have seen suddenly the impossible burger, the burger without meat. And the person who founded it, Pat Brown, his name is, said, I found the most ecological alternative. What does he use? GMO soya, which has killed the monarch butterfly. The glyphosate is causing disease. And he calls it an ecological alternative. And the Impossible Burger shows you the future towards which they are going. Because they are looking at actually patenting food now. Elements of food. Because everything if everything you add is synthetic, there's a patent for it. Fourteen patents on that Impossible Burger. Fourteen. You're really eating a patent monopoly and GMO soya. But it doesn't stop there. It goes further. Because as long as there's an alternative, why would people go for rubbish like this? So you have to create a narrative, just like the narrative that started to make people feel first that organic is backward. You know, the advertisements in Europe by the industry were, it's dirty to use organic manure. You know, it's black, it's dirty. And then they'd bring ads to say, urea is white, it's so clean. And that's what changed the mindset. And there's an attempt to change our mindset about food and not just accept fake food, but accept it as the only solution to climate change. Now, this is where it goes crazy. Because it is, you know, it is true, I've written a book called Soil Not Isle. 50% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the world come from a globalized and industrialized food system. Emissions in the production, emissions in the food miles, emissions through destroying the forest for soya in the Amazon, palm oil in Indonesia comes from packaging, processing. All of this is hugely energy intensive. That's 50%. Now, will more industrialization, more long-distance transport, more energy use solve this problem or make it worse? It will make it worse. But with it, a pseudoscience is being created. And that pseudoscience is animals are to blame. Animals are causing climate change. They're not. Because animals, as part of the biosphere, of course, they have these short cycles of emitting a little bit of methane. But that methane comes back to the carbon cycle. And in 10 years' time, there's no methane. In India, farmers used to have 20 to 30 head of cattle in each family. In the, the plains of America, the bison used to roam. You have the reindeer. Now, if animals were constantly emitting methane and it was building up, we'd have a very stinking planet. Like a waste dump. You know, it has a stink. Or when you go past these factory farms in America, they call them CAFOs, the concentrated animal farm operation. You just go past them, there's such a stink. That stink is methane. But our free-range animals are not stinking. There's a little bit. But you can see not just the bad science, because the biogenic methane, it doesn't build up. But you just suddenly out of the blue, you know. Animals are the problem. Kill them. Ireland is talking about killing a million sheep. New Zealand is taxing all the animals for their burps. And next to you in Netherlands, they had this huge attack on farmers. And they're using the same excuse. And they want one third of the farms wiped out. No, the solution is make make all the farms organic and biodynamic. You'll get rid of the nitrogen problem. Because the nitrogen problem is an industrial agriculture problem. The ecological solutions solve those problems. You know, on our farm, even, even the scientists who did the study for us, I think we did a 20-year study on the valley, and they couldn't believe it, you know, because everyone thinks you put an input, then you have that object. So you put nitrogen fertilizer, you'll have nitrogen. In chemical soils, the nitrogen has depleted 22%. In organic soils, we're not applying any external input. The soil system is creating nitrogen up by 100%. So I think it's time to get rid of this input-output thinking. Because living systems create what the systems need and what the systems related to them need. The mycorrhizal fungi creates through its process what the plant needs. But when Roundup started and, you know, all these chronic diseases started, neuro- neurological disorders started, and the graphs were showing it's going that way. And every time I'd show those graphs, the Monsanto lobbyists would attack. Correlation is not causation. So, But, you know, a good scientist says, oh, if there's a correlation here, let me look for the, what the causation is. You don't escape from seeking causation. So there's an MIT scientist that I've come to know, and I said, okay, Uh, Let's begin with autism. What are the consequences of glyphosate? We know all that. What are the symptoms of autism? And how are the two related? And she did this. And uh, Stephanie Seneff is her name, and she's uh, done a book on glyphosate. But Monsanto always used to say that glyphosate is totally safe for us because our cells don't have the shikimate pathway. And everyone said, yeah, so it can't do any impact. But I know other scientists like Professor Huber and all who pointed out, he says the bacteria in the soil have a shikimate pathway. The bacteria in our gut have a shikimate pathway. And this disruption, disruption by glyphosate is having huge increases. So the bacteria in our gut produce three aromatic amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine through the shikimate pathway. Since our cells don't have the pathway, we have to have these bacteria in order to be able to process all this. These essential amino acids are precursors to the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, and adrenal, as well as thyroid hormone. Folate and vitamin E. The killing of gut bacteria leads to deficiencies in this important biological molecules and impairs our neurological functions. if your entire fake food will be using more GMOs, more Roundup, more synthetic chemicals added to pretend, you know, like in this impossible burger, they actually talk, they made a fake blood called heme to make it look like meat. And I can't understand. I said, You don't want to eat meat? Don't eat meat. There are lots of vegetables. But why do you want to not eat meat, attack everyone, kill every cow? And then say I want blood. It doesn't hang together for me. For the industry I can understand they'll tell any lie. DDT is good for you is how they sell DDT. But for the people who are getting convinced by fake food and the fake narrative and the fake science and the fake economics, that's what puzzles me. And it puzzles me particularly because those who think really think they're solving the climate problem are running down this false line fastest. Fake food as a climate solution is a fake solution. Because it's avoiding the real path we must follow. Deeper integration between animals, plants, and trees, which is what integrated farming is about. More biodiversity, if the planet could cool itself through the biosphere, then our farming must mimic that process to intensify photosynthesis, to intensify biodiversity. And our work has shown that the more you intensify biodiversity, the more you recycle the carbon and nitrogen, the more the soil becomes healthy, you produce more nutrition per acre. We don't measure yield per acre, but what's the point of measuring nutritionally empty commodities? Food is about eating. Food is about nourishment. And if it's nutritionally empty food, you're going to get all kinds of sicknesses and disease. Because we do the soil work and we had, you know, in, in the chemical soils, the, the zinc had gone down 34%. And yeah. in the organic soils, it had gone up 24%. So this public health specialist had come and was visiting us in, um, in Navdanya. And she saw this data and she says, now I understand why our young people are depressed. Because she does brain chemistry. And she found that half of Australia's teenagers were depressed, all of them had zinc deficiency. But if, if there's no zinc in your soil and no zinc on your food, you will have zinc deficiency. You will have magnesium deficiency and have an attention deficit. Yeah. But the chemical world just wants another chemical solution for each of these things. So there's a British meta-study covering more than 400 studies that has found that organic foods can have up to 60% more beneficial nutrition than chemical food. It's interesting, you know, a paper comes out in a nutrition journal or in a toxicology journal. For two days it's there, measuring the nutritional emptiness of industrial food and how, how much more phytochemicals, how much more nutrients the real food has. And then you cannot Google that article. Just as much as when the whole issue of immunity came up. Now, everyone knows that organisms are healthy when they have immunity, any organism. If a plant is organically fed, it is more resilient and will not be impacted by pests. There'd be the same pests in the field. But the chemically grown field will have attack of pests. And the organic regrowth field will not have an attack of pests. That's what Howard saw when he says lots of insects and no pests. So we're growing more and more nutritionally empty commodities at higher and higher cost, and then we're turning it magically into cheap food. How can a high cost production system lead to cheap food? Because the structures of subsidies, the structures of trade, the structures of 400 billion is the agriculture subsidy that makes industrial food cheap enough to dump on third world countries. So they become dependent. Self-sufficient countries who were growing their own food are now importing. And it takes one little instability in the war, one collapse in supply chains for people to have no food. So real food, real farming, for me, is the biggest climate solution. And and we've done this work. When you have a climate disaster, what do you want? You want seeds that are resilient, and we've saved the seeds that are resilient. Climate-tolerant, salt-tolerant, flood-tolerant, drought-tolerant seeds. And they're able to survive and come back after a cyclone, after a drought. You want good resilience in the soil. Where does the resilience of the soil come from in a time where climate change is leading to more floods and more droughts? You need better holding of water. If your soil can hold more water, the flood is not severe. The flood is worst in areas where the soil has been totally panned. And if there's a drought, you want moisture in your soil. 1% 1% organic matter holds 160,000 liters of water in hectare. The soil is a water reservoir. Healthy living soils are a water reservoir. Healthy living soils are not just the resilience and adaption to climate change, but they are the mitigation. And now so many studies are being done. On an average, basically they're showing that if we stop fossil fuel use, in 10 years we can draw down the excess carbon dioxide, through intensifying the biosphere's capacity to do photosynthesis. And the more the fungal population, the more the photosynthesis increases. So we're in a very exciting moment where the real science is backing real food and real farming, making connections between the soil and our gut, making connections between the biodiversity outside and the biodiversity within us, not just the biodiversity in our gut microbiome, but Increasingly, what's really inspiring me is the shift that is taking place from what I have called the monoculture of the mind. The monoculture of the mind thinks of only one value. Soya bean is available, just grow soil. Finish off the prairies, just grow GM soya. Bt cotton, just make everything Bt cotton. Eucalyptus, just plant eucalyptus plantations. And this monoculture of the mind is what has destroyed biodiversity but that's not how minds are minds because they are the relational world that's in constant co-creation this biodiverse world has a biodiverse mind and we have biodiverse minds the ability to see in the whole as well as analyze in the small it's That's what good science is about, to see the system and then look at the part. But the illusion is when you only look at the part and deny the whole. That's where the destruction starts to happen. And that destruction is of course destroying the earth, but worse, it is, you know, I I often feel that the vicious way in which the poison wakers were killing life on earth attack those who are protecting life on earth is like contemporary witch hunts. You know, 9, 1493 was the papal bull that justified Columbus's, you know, going and take, say, take over the territories on our behalf. But I always joke and say, you know, at that time at least there was a god and then there was a pope and then the, below the pope were the kings and queens And then the kings and queens found adventurers like Columbus. What do we have now? The corporations are the creators. They play God. They are the government. They've hijacked our governments. They are kings and queens. They run everything. And they are the merchant adventurers and the pirates of our time. Just more sophisticated, but it's the same old thing. Because everywhere the biodynamic movement is being attacked. In France, in Italy, cases are being filed. When you say your food is healthier, you are misleading the public. You know, so we are living in very avelian times. Lies are truth, and truth are lies. Health is sickness, and sickness is health. So in this moment, the real becomes an awakening. But of course, the real can be terribly troublesome in the mechanistic reductionist view, because In a mechanistic view, we are separate from nature. Everything is a machine, everything is an object. And in that dead world, you can't create a knowing, except through violence. That's why Bacon suggested violence, torture of nature. But in a living world, knowledge is interaction and dialogue, like food is a conversation. Knowing is a conversation between self-organized, intelligent beings. And at this time, as so many crises are converging, which actually have the same roots, the, the same problem, the same fossil fuel world creates climate change. The same fossil fuel chemicals cause extinction of species. Because if insecticides are sprayed to kill insects, insects will disappear. If herbicides are designed to kill, kill plants, the biodiversity of your plants will disappear. So the real is the real lived relationships in a living world. Then the epistemological gap doesn't happen. If we are separate and the object is inert and you're the knowing person, you'll always keep thinking, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know? And then objective knowledge, they call it, becomes totally subjective knowledge of projecting onto the world your illusions. But in the real world, life itself is the teacher. In the real world, intelligence is distributed. And there's such amazing work being done on intelligence of bacteria, intelligence of plants, intelligence of animals, intelligence of soil organism. The mycorrhizal fungi is an intelligent organism that's making choices at every moment what mineral to take up, what toxics to reject. And in this world of vibrant life, rich diversity and deep intelligence, practicing real farming, eating real food, in my view, becomes the revolutionary act for life, freedom and health. Thank you.
1: You were just listening to Vandana Shiva, On Real Food, Real Farming. She spoke in Sweden in early 2023. Vandana Shiva is an internationally renowned voice for sustainable development and social justice. She's the author of many books. Her latest is Terra Viva. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Arundhati Roy, Tarek Ali, Medea Benjamin, and Noam Chomsky. And we have a series of Vandana Shiva programs. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, AlternativeRadio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, AlternativeRadio.org. For copies of today's program... Vandana Shiva on Real Food, Real Farming, and for her inspiring latest book, Terra Viva, just call us at one 800 That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsanyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with sitar maestro Debu Chaudhary playing Raga Mian Ki Malha, recorded live in New Delhi in 2010.